When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and this is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount. On this show, we're getting to the bottom of what still holds women back from women who are beating the odds. 1991, I have learned over the past 30 years, was bigger than me. It was bigger than Clarence Thomas. It was bigger than the City Judiciary Committee. It was bigger than the issue of sexual harassment. It opened a conversation on a whole range of misconducts. Here to help me introduce this week's guest is my producer, Sari Soffer. It's a major one. Anita Hill is on the podcast today. She's a professor of social policy, law, and women and gender studies at Brandeis University, but she became a household name after testifying in 1991 during now Justice Clarence Thomas's Supreme Court Senate confirmation hearings. She told the Senate Judiciary Committee then that Thomas had sexually harassed her when she worked for him at the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC, years earlier. Yes, friends, the Anita Hill. We recorded this conversation with her in October of 2021, which was the 30-year anniversary of the hearing. And what a lot of people remember from that moment is how badly she was treated by the senators and the Judiciary Committee and sort of berated. How sure can you expect this committee to be on the accuracy of your statement? In fact, he never did ask you to have sex, correct? Are you a scorned woman? But... That's not how I remember it. Like, I remember it as a moment of real power from a woman. The hearing was the year before I was born, so I'm really eager to hear from her the events that surrounded those sound bites and those images that have been immortalized at this point. And I think everyone could use a refresher because what went down during Anita Hill's testimony, the imbalance of power and resources, the shaming and blaming, that all repeated itself to a T in 2018 with Christine Blasey Ford's testifying against Kavanaugh. And I know I speak for millions of young women in saying that that was devastating. We thought that things had changed and that we'd made progress since Professor Hill. And it just shows you that all these forces are still at work, not just at the level of Professor Hill and Dr. Blasey Ford, but in the lives and workplaces of everyone. It's worth noting that a Pew survey a few years ago revealed almost 60 percent of women and nearly 30 percent of men say they've been sexually harassed at some point. And we know a lot of that shifted online during the pandemic. So this conversation is just more important than ever. And Nina Hill certainly recognizes the cycle of progress and backlash. Earlier this year, she released her latest book called Believing, which documents the epidemic of gender-based violence in this country and offers ways we can address it from inside our schools to within our offices and everywhere. And that's what we're going to get into today. So let's get to it. Dr. Anita Hill, thank you so much for 
joining me. And I have to tell you, it's a real honor to meet you and have you on this podcast. Well, thank you. And you may call me Anita, if I can call you Jennifer. Absolutely. (laughs) We will do that. Okay. So it has been 30 years this month since you testified. I was working on Capitol Hill at the time. I had just graduated from college in 1988, just started out my career in Capitol Hill. So your hearing was my first, as an adult, big news awakening moment. And I had been in the workplace long enough to know that there were men that did and said the things that Justice Thomas did. What I didn't know was you were allowed to complain about it. And what I was so amazed to see was that by you saying it happened, you made it wrong. And I know that when you testified, you said you did it with reluctance. Telling the world is the most difficult experience of my life. Can you walk us through your decision to come forward and to testify? Well, the movement forward wasn't just an instant decision. It took really a lot of soul searching, a lot of really coming to terms with the gravity of the moment and the importance of the appointment of someone to a lifetime position on the Supreme Court. I felt as a officer of the court, as a member of the bar, also as a teacher of law students, you know, I felt I had a responsibility in all those ways to come forward. And ultimately I did. But I tried to create my own path for doing so. My understanding of what the process is, is that someone told the Senate Judiciary Committee staff, you should talk to Anita Hill about her experiences. Then the Senate staff reaches out to you, you talk to them, and then they could either have summed up your comments in a report or you could have testified yourself. Is that right? Is that how it went? Oh, I don't know that. <laughs> I, I don't know because I was never told exactly what was going to happen. I just know that once the statement that I sent in got leaked, there was pressure right. to have me testify. It's kind of amazing that like the, how opaque this process is at that you still don't quite know what happened. And I suspect it's that way today. I think it is. I don't think Christy Blasey Ford had any better route to get her testimony than I did. You know, I, I don't have any evidence that there is a system now that would be clear if someone were, were to come forward. And, you know, it's time for us to stop kidding ourselves and saying that this couldn't happen again. It did happen again. Yeah. And and I honestly believe to this day that if those Congresswomen had marched over from the House to the Senate to urge the Senate to have a hearing. I don't think that there would be a hearing at all. There wouldn't have been a hearing at all. The members of Congress that you're referring to was a number of House members, including, I think, led by Barbara Boxer, who was then a House member from California, to come over to the Senate and demand that there be a hearing. There was a lot of leadership, but they understood the importance of of what I had to say. I, I still, though, think that even though the Senate Judiciary Committee held a hearing, I don't think they did so with a deep understanding of the issue of sexual harassment. And one of the things that I talk about in, the, in Believing is the fact that 
they really didn't have any clue as to how to weigh the evidence. They had, didn't have any clue about what a proper investigation would be. Right. There were no expert witnesses on the issue called, even though there were experts waiting to be called. And of course, then there were the four witnesses, three of whom were ready and willing to testify at the hearing, waiting to testify, mm -hmm. but they were never called. At 2.30 in the morning, their statements were read into the record. And if we think back on this with hindsight now, we realize that, you know, even today, it takes multiple witnesses to convince people that there has been misconduct. And so at that point, what the Senate Judiciary did was to sort of set the hearing up for a sort of he said, she said situation. And in those instances, with the power imbalance, with the familiarity that people had with Clarence Thomas after he'd actually been, had gone through part of the hearing process, he had right. the weight of the White House, with all of that going for him, it, it seems unreasonable to think that they were ever going to give me any benefit of the doubt or really give me a fair chance to make my case. And also take into account that I was subpoenaed and within less than a week, maybe three or four days, I was testifying. So wow. I had no real chance to prepare. And again, just as a refresher, the allegations you were making against Clarence Thomas were that he was sexually harassing you when you were both working at the EEOC which just really strikes me because the EEOC is all about getting justice and rights in the workplace. And that is the backdrop for the behavior you were describing. Did the fact that you worked there and that your background was in law make you more likely to take this step and come forward? Yes, of course, because when I arrived in, I guess it was 82, we were reviewing regulations around sexual harassment. And so, yes, the whole situation was really surreal. And even during the hearing, one of the senators, I think it was our inspector, I believe mm -hmm. it was him, because he spent quite a bit of time questioning me. I remember that. But during the hearing, he tried to shame me for being a lawyer and being, you know, at the EEOC and not coming forward before. The question is why with an experienced lawyer uh, in that position being concerned about women's rights, do you leave a man, Clarence Thomas, as chairman of the EEOC for years when, according to your testimony, he has been guilty of sexual harassment himself? Right. Even though, you know, it, there was clearly no complaint process to challenge the head of the EEOC at that point. And you know, the members of the Judiciary Committee were exemplifying exactly why it would have been nearly impossible for me to be heard if I had attempted to come forward at the time that I was working in Washington, D.C. for Clarence Thomas, who I believe even at that point was already being groomed for a higher position, a position on the Supreme Court. I don't think I knew that, but at least a position on the federal bench. Mm -hmm. People ask, why don't you come forward earlier as you're going through the crucible of the hearing, as if their questions themselves don't answer that. Yeah. As you're watching 
you are getting the answer to your yeah. questions. You're watching what your colleagues are doing and saying. And maybe they didn't think about the balance of power and how difficult it is for someone who is at least uh, by 1991 was a, a political outsider to be able to come into what had become a highly politicized Senate Judiciary Committee hearing and be able to be heard yep. over all of the coverage that the Republicans got. I mean, even the media coverage was completely lopsided. Yeah. You know, there was a Columbia Journalism Review mm -hmm. report that said that it was, you know, two-thirds of the coverage was from Republican sources. But, you know, I don't talk about it to try to relitigate 1991. I still think that there are lessons that we can learn from it. Right. And that lessons that we really need to learn from it. Because, honestly, 1991, I have learned over the past 30 years, was bigger than me. It was bigger than Clarence Thomas. It was bigger than the City Judiciary Committee. It was bigger than the issue of sexual harassment. It opened a conversation on a whole range of misconduct, some of the sexual, some of them just violent uh, or brutal or aggressive behavior against women and others that's going on today. Yes. And so I talk about it because, you know, we still need to learn. We need to understand that the processes that failed me uh, are being replicated throughout the country. You know, it's funny. I have no memory of bad coverage. I have no memory of that. I just have a memory of you in that suit being so poised, so in control, so brave, and thinking that is possible. That is possible for women to stand up and say this. I thought he would not get confirmed. He, of course, did. I knew next time around that Brett Kavanaugh would get confirmed. But I also knew that Christine Blasey Ford coming forward was going to have a big impact on society well outside of what happened at that hearing room. And she was treated even worse than you. Her process was even more railroaded. I've talked to her about this. I know you've talked to her about it, too. She had no idea what she was walking into when she walked into that hearing room. She did not even understand, from what she told me, that all of the senators were going to be there, that it was going to be televised. Every, you know, she didn't like, you know, which is why she sat down and asked for a cup of coffee because she thought it was like a different setting. I don't understand how that happened. But the fact that they did railroad her, I choose to see as some kind of progress in that they knew we can't let this turn into another Anita Hill because that was a disaster for us in the long term. I try to live with, you made a lot of progress. You made a lot of things possible. You opened up this whole other conversations. Bad stuff kind of toppled because of what you did. And that guy still got on the Supreme Court. And then the same thing with Kavanaugh. Kavanaugh gets on the Supreme Court. But Blasey Ford is part of Me Too, is part, you know, I don't even know if it's right to say a push-pull here where... Rights are advanced because of what you did. At the same time, rights are taken away from women because of who ends up on the court. How yeah, do you see it? You know, I think there is this back and forth. But let me just say this. 1991 captured the anxiety and aggression and hostility. The language that was used from the senators while in the committee meetings and then toward the media, that kind of vitriol was 
clear and it was real and it was a reflection of how they saw women coming forward as the enemy and somebody who had to be beaten back. 2018 was was different. And I'm not saying that one was better or worse than the other. I think you said that Christine Blasey Ford was treated worse than I was. I'm not willing to say that. 2018 was the sort of, let's pretend as though we're being fair. It was more of a sham because there was the pretense that, oh, well, we're open-minded. We're going to listen. There was no pretense in 1991 on the part of the Republicans. And there was indifference, I think, on the part of some of the Democrats. So I think what you have are two different versions of what is happening now. You have companies that are pretending to have fair processes, but behind the scenes, decisions have already been made. You have companies that are openly hostile to employees' complaints. And one may be just as bad as the other, even though they're different, because ultimately the outcomes are flawed. And people lose trust, not only the people who are the direct victims, but other people in the institutions lose trust. People in 1991 lost trust in the Supreme Court. That is one of the things that we have got to come to terms with. And that's the role of the Senate Judiciary Committee to help us come to terms with that, to restore that trust in the court. That's one of the things that just really hurts me as a lawyer, as somebody who has taught law, who has taught law students, who's, you know, encouraged them to go into this profession. The corruption of the trust that we have in the court now can be related directly to those Senate Judiciary Committee hearings. And our leadership needs to own that. They need to acknowledge it, own it, and commit to doing something about it. Okay, we have to take a quick break to pay some bills. After the break, I want to talk more about what's broken in our institutions, from school to the workplace, which you track in your new book, Believing. We'll dig into that next with Anita Hill on Just Something About Her. 
30 years later, she just released a book about how we still have a long way to go to address the endemic issue of sexual harassment and gender-based violence. Your book is called Believing. Can you explain why you chose that title about believing women? Well, it, it's really about my believing that this was a worthy cause because not only was I hesitant to come forward in large part because I, I didn't see a real path or what a process was going to look like, but I was also hesitant because I thought they wouldn't understand the nature of the problem. And that a bunch of man, male senators would not. They, they are, wouldn't. Then maybe even if they heard me and believed me, it wouldn't matter. And so I had some decisions to make after the hearings about what was going to happen in my life. Because I started to hear literally within weeks, actually within days of the hearing, I started to get these letters from thousands of people. I mean, just flooded my mailbox. Mm -hmm. And people wanted answers. They wanted answers to what had happened in the Senate Judiciary Committee. They wanted answers to what was happening in their lives in their workplaces. And, you know, sexual harassment was just the start. I had a caller who was an incest survivor who told me that the hearings reminded him of when he had tried to tell his parents that he was being violated by a family member and, and they rejected him and denied that the behavior had happened. But ironically, the hearings helped him understand that it was part of the culture this culture of denial mm -hmm. of bad behavior. Right. So when I chose the title Believing, it was to mark the fact that I came into this believing that we should and could do better. How do you feel about that now? I still believe. Yeah, I, I believe women deserve better. And I, now I understand that the abuse is experienced by women, men, non-binary yep. people. You know, there's no perfect victim. And, and so I still feel that we can change. But as I said, uh, in reference to the Senate Judiciary Committee, our leaders in our institutions around the country need to take this as a top priority for their institutions, because I am convinced that they're is no place that is free of this abuse. Whether we're talking about colleges and universities or workforces or entire sectors of industry, or whether we're talking about our elementary schools and middle schools. Yeah, you write about the behavior that's sort of tolerated and bullying from kids that's written off as like, well, they're young. Yeah, like where, where you well, it's the sort of boys will be boys or that the teasing and the harassing and the haranguing and now the cyber bullying isn't right. that bad. And so you should just pretend it doesn't exist or just ignore it. And what is happening with these tropes that we roll out is we are grooming people who are victimized to continue to be accepting of their victimization. And we're grooming those who would engage in that victimization to believe that their behavior is acceptable. Yeah. So if they're told in elementary school or middle school that nothing is going to be done about the problem, 
they believe that nothing will be done in high school and nothing will be done in college. And you know that one in four women are mm-hmm. sexually harassed or sexually assaulted in college, very likely in their first or second year. So we are grooming people to tolerate that behavior. Oftentimes when we complain about what is happening in elementary schools and middle schools, you know, you get sort of pushback saying, oh, well, you're just overreacting. Right. You're being a snowflake. Yeah, it can't be that bad. And that kind of language has actually even entered into the lexicon uh, of the Supreme Court in, in a case involving a sixth grader who was abused by a classmate. And in a dissent, Justice Kennedy said that, you know, this was just routine child play. But in fact, in that specific case, ultimately, the child pled no contest to a sexual assault claim that was brought by local law enforcement. I got an email a few weeks ago, I mean, just as a reminder of how important the, what goes on in elementary and secondary schools. It was a plea for Title IX in, mm-hmm. in its enforcement in elementary and middle schools. And, and a girl wrote that her first experience with sexual assault was in the first grade. And she told the teacher uh, about what happened to her. And the teacher's response was to suspend the girl's recess privileges, saying that she was being inappropriate. We can say, oh, that has to be an aberration. But no, 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 no. we hear it over and over again. And so she got blamed, really, for her own yeah. abuse. Why didn't you come forward earlier, Professor Hill? Right? Yeah, well, like, exactly. When, when, when your whole life you've absorbed those signals about what you're supposed to tolerate. Yeah. This is something that is part of our culture. We grow up with it. We live with it. Yeah. What are the chances that if that is no intervention, that that girl is going to tell someone in authority about the next time that she's abused? I mean, what struck me with the book and calling it Believing is, you know, because I think a lot of times when women come forward, the question is, is she believable or not? Right. Are we going to believe her? But what I find happens a lot now is like, oh, we believe her, but we're going to accept it anyway. That's one of the things that I keep saying as people, they've sort of fallen into this trap of, well, if we can just get people to believe, just to believe women. Well, my sense is that believing is the problem, that, that our inability to do anything about it, to challenge power. That is what the problem is. I mean, the, the tragedy is, of course, that we as witnesses who come forward and risk our lives, and Christine Bosley Ford has risked her life. Yes, that's all. Um, you know, we're rejected and we have to go back into communities and live with the hostility that in large part is created by the process that we've just gone through. But the public interest is not served. I mean, there's a disservice to the public. Mm-hmm. You did have to change your career after this to take on this fight. It's not how you expected your career to go or what you, right, what you planned to do. Do you resent that at all? Or do you just feel like this is the right fight for you? Well, I changed it a couple of ways. Yeah. And by the time I did testify, I was commercial lawyer. Mm. Loved it. I thought that would be my career. But then 
I made a decision to commit to these issues. And I was also frustrated because, you know, we have had laws against this behavior, other kinds of ranges of behavior. Right. EEOC regs. Yeah. But in 1991, people didn't even know that there were laws against it. And then in, in other instances, people know, but even if they know, there's nothing that they can do. They can't afford to file a suit. They can't afford to risk losing their job. They can't afford to experience the retaliation that by some measures, nearly 60, 70% of people who file complaints face. And I also knew that the law is moving away from the real heart of the civil rights protections when it comes to workplace harassment, that increasingly corporate interests are put over the interest of individual civil rights. I know that businesses have come up with tools like non-disclosure agreements or right. forced arbitration that typically favors employers. And so that the law isn't the only answer. Right. People can't afford to access it. They don't have the wherewithal. They can't find a lawyer to represent them, especially if they don't make much money. And so that's when I left teaching in a law school and went to look for other answers. And honestly, I know that I have been privileged to be able to do that. Right. Because many people who face what I face leave their jobs and really have a hard time getting their career back on track, have a hard time even making enough money to sustain their family's well-being. So I don't say I was forced to make that change. I was privileged to be able to make the change and to rededicate my career. Mm. I teach now at the Heller School and knowledge in pursuit of social justice is part of what we talk about. And Brandeis University, Heller School, mm -hmm. they have been good homes for me to be able to grow into this role and to be where I am today. And I have no regrets. I'm really glad to hear that. All right. After the break, we will get more into what can be done to address this epidemic of gender-based discrimination and violence with Anita Hill on Just Something About Her. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Just Something About Her with a very special guest this week, Professor Anita Hill. It's interesting to me, you believe in process. You've brought that up a lot. You know, I will fall into this trap of just looking at how women are treated across the board as a societal problem. But you, you do seem to believe that the right process can be a path to justice in the workplace, yeah. in the Senate Judiciary Committee, and, and elsewhere. Say more about that. There's a behavior right. 
we're now starting to understand more and more of the behavior. And that's come because people have stepped up, like in the Me Too movement, they've made, mm -hmm. they posted, they've tweeted, people have shared their stories and, and they're continuing to do that. And so there is the behavior that we need to come to terms with and acknowledge because there's still people who just deny that the behavior exists. Oh, it's just a few bad apples, they'll say. Yeah. Well, no, it's bigger than that. Yeah. There is a culture of silencing and blaming victims and denial and dismissiveness. Unfortunately, that culture influences processes right now. And, you know, I don't think of the processes as sort of standalone out there. And once we have a process mm -hmm. that we are going to be able to fight this issue because what we have is a tendency to build our denials and dismissiveness into our processes, you know, and the power imbalances are built into the process when employers have so much control over how processes are taken in and investigated in a workplace. You know, that's a real power imbalance, especially if you're talking about workers who are entry level or far, far from the higher ranks. Yeah. So how do we deal with both culture and processes? One, we can take a preventive approach to issues in the workplace. We can stop behavior before it escalates to some of the worst sexual harassment and extortion and groping. Right. The National Academy of Sciences did a, a report about sexual harassment in academic medicine, science, and engineering. And one of the things that they found was that the sexual harassment problem was the tip of the iceberg. That, in fact, there is this whole body of gender harassment right. that is going on where there are comments that some people today would call microaggressions. Yes. Well, you know, women can't do this, or I'm sure you won't know about this because you're a woman, or, you know, I'd rather not have all women teams working on this project, or men who don't want to work with women on projects, or all this sort of gender harassment that comes in the form of jokes, maybe. And that, the sexual harassment is just a symptom of this larger, like, what, unease well, with, like, we, women's new-ish role in the modern world. But more so than that, because mm -hmm. sexual harassment has been going on before the modern workplace. But more so than that, what we know from the research is that the culture escalates that behavior. So that those entry-level aggressive kinds of comments tend to turn into worse behavior. So that if you start by saying to your employees, this behavior is unacceptable, the gender harassment is unacceptable, you have a better chance of preventing the other more egregious behavior from happening. But it sounds like that's also reliant upon people coming forward to say this is happening. That's like a well, given. The other thing that you can do with that is to make sure that leadership is clear that this behavior is not going to be tolerated. Therefore, not only will the people who are most victimized come forward, but so will the so-called bystanders who are witnessing it. Right. You know, that's a real problem, too, is that many people who complained 
will tell you that there were other people in the workforce who were sitting there, but they didn't do anything. They didn't say anything. So you need to combine this preventive approach with bystander empowerment. Then you have to educate people about the complaint process. You can't have this opaque process like we were talking about earlier. Right. You've got to be able to have a process that is clear, that people understand what's going to happen. They understand who is going to be consulted, how the investigation is going to go. It has to be an impartial investigation. Uh, in many cases, depending on the level of power that a person has, it should be a third-party independent investigator and not someone who is then going to report to the person who is being accused. And then you have to have clear outcomes. What are the outcomes? You know, we get all this talk now about cancel culture. To some people, that means victims should just shut up and stop complaining. But there has to be something like accountability. And that's one of the things that's been lacking. You know, I chair the Hollywood Commission. And one to of... Explain what that is. It's a group that was formed after uh, Me Too movement. It was the idea of Kathleen Kennedy, who is at Disney, Lucasfilm specifically, mm -hmm. who said we should have a commission to develop best practices in our industry. Well, we're working on it. And one of the things we did in working on it was to do a survey. And I'm not just because I'm an academic, but in general, I'm a real proponent of collecting information. Find out what the problems are. Find out what the culture is in your organization. But there was one question that just about every demographic agreed on when we asked the question of whether a more powerful person would be held accountable for bad behavior, a majority of people from just about every demographic said no. They did not feel that a powerful person would be held accountable. And so we have a trust gap in our workplaces in terms of whether even if a person comes forward and they're believed and they've gone through the process and they've proven their case, right. whether or not anything is going to be done about it. They were taught at first grade, right, that they were being inappropriate when they... When they, they spoke up. And they yeah. were taught that there would not be any accountability. And that message keeps going and played over and over again. 30 years ago, I believe that things were getting better, but 30 years ago, I believed... By this point, we would be a lot further along. Yeah, I, I, I understand we have been disappointed. I feel like we are behind where we should be. But I take the long view. 30 years ago, people didn't know how to pronounce sexual harassment. And they certainly didn't see the connection between that and many of the other experiences of violations that we have laid out, things like Me Too, and then many of the articles and reports that have been written and books that have been written since. We didn't have movements right. that we have now. We have organizations that are taking on these issues that have sprung up over uh, the years. Student movements on college campuses, even today, against sexual assault on campuses. We have all of the tools. We've got a better awareness of the behavior. We're starting to see how culture is enforcing and complicit with the behavior. 
And I think we just need to take that next step. And because we're talking about processes, because we're talking about policies, necessarily our leaders have to be involved. The leaders in Washington, including our president, but mm -hmm. I also mean leaders in our communities, leaders in universities, leaders in businesses. So if we wanted to start with elementary schools, let's start with making this a, an issue with our principals in our schools. We can start with that as parents or grandparents or aunts or uncles. So I think what has been missing is really a sense of how do we get to end this problem. And it seems like it's not just every stage of life, but it's also each person that there is something that they need to, to do, to be part of Every it. person can play a role in this. And it every person has, has a stake in it. Every person has a stake in it, right? You do not want this to continue. I think it's the responsibility of each generation to do their part. You know, I remember the baby boomer generation. Mm -hmm. We're now leading organizations and corporations. It's our responsibility. We won't finish. But if we don't start, we're just going to be passing it on to the next and then the next. And we're going to be sending more and more people into systems that will fail them. I'm part of Generation X. So I watched you do what you did. And I thought, wow, well, because of women like Anita Hill, these problems are solved. And I think I sat back for too long thinking we were on a path to solving everything. It was all going to be good. And it's, you know, the last five years that I've realized, you know, my sort of big way he was working, I worked on Hillary Clinton's campaign, watching what happens to a woman in power trying to get more power. And now I'm like, oh, you know, I was complacent and now you have to be engaged. You have to be engaged with the long term. It has to be consistent and it's got to be throughout society. And I think, you know, I do worry. I see things slipping back, right, from where they were even in 18 in terms of awareness and tolerance. You know, I see now, like, it's my role, my generation to be more vigilant. Well, I think every generation plays a role. Yeah. And I'm very fortunate that I teach and well, the students that I teach, the millennials. and The Gen Z too, right? Their their role is to prod us. Their role is to prod us. And, and, uh, They're good yeah. at that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I appreciate it. Okay. I'm, I'm on it. <laughs> really grateful to you uh, for doing this. It's been a great conversation. The more we talk, the more people will hear. Terry, are you there and just beaming? I really am. <laughs> <laughs> I really am. And I like that you were able to provide some of your own personal accounts of hearing the testimony contrasted with her experiences, experiencing the testimony. So that was really cool because, yeah, I wasn't alive then. And it's cool to hear uh, firsthand accounts of it. But something I've just been really thinking about, and I read her book and I've been thinking about it since reading this also, is just the cycle of how these big bursts of support and calls for change happen, followed by backlash. So, you know, with Anita Hill's testimony, there was outrage from women after Clarence Thomas was appointed to the Supreme Court. There was a year of the women right after. The same thing happened with Christine Blasey Ford's testimony. And then followed by both of those, there was huge backlash. Anita Hill talks about her book, how NDAs became more common after her testimony. Yeah, that was the solution. Right, exactly. And we're yeah. still dealing with NDAs. And there was, you know, Me Too that all those NDAs uh, were revealed. And one of the backlashes that have come from uh, Christine Blasey Ford's testimony is this wave of anti 
choice bills that have swept our country in the past few years, with the Texas and Mississippi abortion bills being heard in uh, Supreme Court. The hearings for the Mississippi one are coming up on December 1st. It just reminds us how important each of these justices is, and Thomas and Kavanaugh are just out there. Yeah. You know, making these big decisions for women's women's futures. And I I just feel like it's one step forward, two steps back. But I I don't want to feel that way. Like, is it the opposite? Is it two steps forward, one step back? I think it's two steps forward, one step back. I do. Tell me why. (laughs) I see it as like the last gasp of these kinds of battles. I mean, and I could be I could fully be wrong about that. I could be too optimistic about that. But I do think that our own attitude matters in this moment. If we believe that things are progressing. If we believe what you see now with, you know, trying to jam men onto the, well, men and women, to be fair, on the Supreme Court in a power grab, it can be very disheartening. But I see it as they know they are living on borrowed time. You know, even the manner in which the Republicans did Christine Blasey Ford's hearing, it was like they wanted to jam it through because they wanted to get it over with as soon as possible because they knew they're going to pay a price for it. And by the way, They did, because remember, that was the fall of 2018. And what followed that Mm -hmm. was the Democrats taking back control of the House and continuing to motivate men and women both to turn out and vote against Donald Trump in 2020 as well. Progress is never a linear experience. It doesn't go in a straight line. But I really believe that, you know, your generation is attuned in a way that my generation was not. And I feel that this time men are more of a party than they have ever been. Definitely. You know, one of the things I, I, as I said in the interview with her, that I really love this concept is that the problem isn't that we don't believe women when they Mm -hmm. say that they have been abused or attacked, assaulted, harassed. We do. We just accept it. And so believing is, there's multifacets here. Believing is believing you can make a difference. Believing is that not just believing women, but stop tolerating this kind of behavior against them. And she did ask that people read the book and make comments in Amazon in the comments section. Yes. You know, that is how books like this got the uh, reach that they need. So please yep. do them. And believing is believing that this is an issue worth reading her book about and worth fighting for. There you go. Um, so I'm so, so glad we had her on. And yeah. that was iconic. Yeah, it was. Proper use of the word. <laughs> this is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount. Thank you to Anita Hill for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcast app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. D. Scott Carroll and Tara Adovino engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. And Sari Soffer is our producer.